Wouldn't it be nice if our software just worked? You know, if it just did what it was supposed to do. Some days that seems like a distant dream. But we can hope. We have to hope. We have to stretch ourselves for the day when software is reliable. How are we going to get there? I'm told that the answer to this is test-driven development. And I do like that technique and I use it. And plenty has been said about how great it is. So let me risk excommunication and tell you my problem with test-driven development. You do end up with an awful lot of test code. And because that code is just code, of course it comes with a maintenance overhead of its own. And it has reliability and readability problems of its own. And on one of my more dark and cynical days, it seems like our code wasn't working, so we just doubled the amount of code. And in my heart of hearts, I don't know, it just seems like we're doing things the hard way, like that's almost too much work. And my job as a programmer is to be lazy in the smart way. I see that many unit tests, and I just want to automate the problem away. Well, that's the promise of property testing. Write a bit of code that describes the shape of your software, and it will go away and create 10,000 unit tests to see if you're right, if it actually does work that way. And this week, we're going to look at property testing, what it is, how it works, and we're also going to address my biggest disappointment so far with property testing, which is that it only seems to work in theory. It's great for textbook examples. I'm sold on the principle, but I've struggled to make it work on my more gnarly real-world code. Well, enter stage left riding a white horse, Oscar Wickstrom, who has some sneaky techniques for making property testing practical, stuff he's been using to test things like databases, system migrations, video editors, and even the really messy world of user interfaces. And this discussion has me genuinely looking at my test suites in a new light and wanting to try to do things differently. And I really hope it does the same for you. So let's get started. I'm your host, Chris Jenkins. This is Developer Voices, and today's voice is Oscar Wickstrom. I'm joined today by Oscar Wickstrom. How are you doing, Oscar? Very good. Thank you. How about you? I'm very well. I'm, uh, I'm intrigued by the musical instruments sitting behind you. I wonder if we should have a jam session instead of a podcast. <laughs> yeah, maybe so. Uh, this is a shed in uh, in many respects, I guess. <laughs> Your drum shed. That's a nice drum, thing to have. Uh, drum shed, programming shed, office <laughs> in a more... <laughs> So when your code isn't working, you can just bang the drums and get your frustration out. Yeah, it's after every meeting. I just flip around and <laughs> go I think ahead. we all need that. <laughs> but, but by some measure, your code should be working more often than most. Right. Better than my drumming. <laughs> yeah. Gauntlet thrown down. Yeah. Because uh, you're going to talk about, pro- we're going to talk about property testing in this yeah. one. Because you have... A- We'll, we'll get into a definition of what it is, but I th- think you've taken this as far as anyone I know in the practical sense. There are lots of theoretical people working on it and people building more frameworks for property testing, hmm. but you've been using an anger in a really interesting way. Before we get into that, I think we should get everyone on the same page and you can give me your personal definition of what property testing is. Yeah, good. And I haven't prepped any... <laughs> Like uh, good, good. that'll keep it honest rather than marketing-y <laughs> yeah <laughs> okay so I, I when i try to explain this i usually t- start with what people are comfortable with normally and what's the sort of the state of affairs and uh, most people have been doing some kind of unit testing or example based testing if you want to call it that yeah um so i try to start there and with example based testing you you sort of um you have something you want to you want to test and then you come up with at a high level inputs and outputs and it might seem a little weird to think about it as input input and output but um if you have a, a you know a function it's pretty clear how it's an input and output that you're testing but you might be testing some kind of database storage thing and the output 
is more like the effect of storing something in a database, for instance. Yeah. Um, but you have these at a high level. You have these input and output pairs uh, for each of your tests. You say like, okay, if I do this, then I should have this result. That's the input and output. So I say my create user function, if I call it with oscar.wickstrom at google.com, I ought to be able to select a row out of the database afterwards. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. outcome is sort of output <laughs> in that. Um, okay, and then you come up with a bunch of these and you write tests for them. And uh, you might have a bunch of these and... Uh, feel like, okay, uh, it's getting a bit repetitive and I have a lot of duplication here. And then you can refactor and you can like move things around and, and um, improve that situation. And there is this technique called um, data-driven tests or um, sort of tabular tests or whatever you want to call it, where okay. you have just one function doing this assertion or whatever. And then you supply a table where each row is a bunch of inputs and the output. So sort of the okay. expectation. Yeah, I've done go. that without naming it that. Okay, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure if that's the like, proper name, but it has a lot of, a lot of different names. Um, but you can, um, you can then just add more rows, and it's easier to add more tests uh, in that sense. Yeah. Uh, still, so you have you've sort of fixed some of the maintainability problems of having a thousand copy copy pasted tests um, <laughs> but you have have a, a different problem still which is you have to come up with these inputs and outputs and uh, humans aren't that good with coming up with all the interesting edge cases and uh, combinatorics of uh, of what to test yeah I wonder how many bits of code out there take an email address and they've never tested it with Unicode characters. Yeah. That kind of thing. And so on, yeah. Mm. So yeah, strings are one good <laughs> one good example of these where we have sort of a domain of strings that are valid and yeah, it can get tricky pretty quickly. And you have to if you have different um different inputs that have some kind of relation to each other, it sort of explodes quickly. And um so yeah, that problem is uh, you don't solve that very well with this tabular testing thing. And and that's where property testing comes in because there's like the next step here. If we could keep that function, but instead generate this whole table, generate all the input and output pairs and express uh, our tests as a function still. But then it becomes tricky because... Well, you can't, this, this relation between input and output has so far only been in your head, right? It's yeah. something that you have some kind of intuition about, some idea, and like, yeah, of course, this input goes along with this output, that makes sense. But you haven't really pinned down formally why do they belong together. Uh, so you're saying like, if I have a function that's supposed to pull the domain name out of an email address... If it's Oscar at Gmail, I can say that, and I can say the output should be Gmail, but I haven't really defined what it means to pull the domain out of an yeah. email address. Right? Yeah. Why is it just Gmail? Right. Yeah, yeah, when it's something else. Yeah, and then you can maybe... So if you do that, and you can generate these inputs, email addresses, for instance, and you want to say, okay, I have a function that pulls out the domain name, um, then you have to... Uh, in order to be able to test it, if you can just generate the inputs, you have to come up with a way of formalizing the relation to the output. So you have to think of what's the general rule on how do I go from input to output in a, in a proper way. Yeah, because your unit tests are kind of hinting at a pattern you now want to make more explicit. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So unit tests or example-based tests are small pieces of like narrative, small stories about how things uh, how things work, but you have to generalize that. So going from these small examples, stories, or sort of evidence of what's going on, <laughs> observations almost, um, you have to raise that and into a general uh, 
generalize that relation basically between input and output. So for your example, you might, uh, let's see if I can come up with something on the spot, but uh, <laughs> if you say like, okay, if I want to extract um, the domain name out of an email address, uh, if I then could uh, also extract, say, the the part before the ads, I don't know what it's called, but, you know, the, the usernames or part of it. Yeah. Um, and then piece together those two results, and then I should end up with what I started with, maybe. Yeah, yeah. And that test is general. You can feed it whatever whatever email address you want, uh, and it will do this sort of test your function that extracts the domain, but also do something else, piece together, and check that the, the output is the same as the input, maybe. So then you have you have thought about your test differently in order to be able to test on any input. This is what I like about the idea of property testing, that the way we're doing the testing is somehow made of slightly different stuff than the code that's under test. It always feels like unit tests are made of exactly the same material as the code. Yeah. And that's that's always felt somehow wrong to me. Yeah, it's, it's easy to end up there. Like your tests are one-to-one reflecting the implementation right yeah sure many have uh, seen that but um and property testing is you can end up in that situation if you do property testing with sort of the i don't want to say wrong type of property but certain type of properties don't fit certain type of uh, systems or functions under test then you can end up in the same kind of situation but if you do find a nice pattern for writing a property for a certain thing you want to test, you're sort of forced to not do that, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm um, I'm kind of reminded of a discussion we had with Simon Peyton Jones a few weeks ago, where it's like there's an algorithm that computes square roots, and it's very easy once you found a square root to test if it was actually right. But the way mm-hmm. you're testing if it's correct is very different than the way you're calculating it. Yeah, it's and easy so, to go in one direction but not the other. Yeah. And so when you're going in both directions, it's kind of almost adversarial in a yeah. positive way. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah. And that brings kind of up the, my third point on what property testing does in, in a different way than example-based tests, where it, my colleague said this to me, like, it's, it's nice in the sense that you, when you've written a function, you have probably all already thought about your the, the things you want to cover, the things you can imagine could go wrong or should be successful and so on. Yeah. And this forces you to express it in a totally different way, which, as you say, it becomes sort of adversarial. It's thinking differently and coming up with different paths or different examples that could break your assumptions that you had when you wrote it. So it's it's hard to do that mind shift, just going back and forth between being your own friend and being your enemy back and forth. Yeah. So what is it about property tests that makes that easier, do you think? Well, it's it's really hard to, in, in most cases then, as, as I was going into before, it's hard to uh, actually do a property test and describe the implementation. I think because it's it's so different in some, it's hard to describe, but it's, you have to think differently about how you test it when you don't know, for instance, don't know the output, you only know the input. What should you, the output be? I don't know. I, I can't say something concrete about the input because I don't know what it is. I have to find this general generalization and, and that sort of forces you to uh, think differently. And that in combination with inputs being generated, not by you, <laughs> your brain, <laughs> but by some other semi-stochastic thing, um, that tends to uncover things you haven't thought about. Right, so you're saying I write a property test that takes, let's stick with email address. I'm going to get a huge number of randomly generated email addresses, and because that input is so varied, I kind of have to treat it in an abstract way. Yeah, I can't think of it as a concrete thing, so I have to think about the whole testing problem differently. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So the big problem with this always is you go to a you go to a conference talk 
on property testing and they give you lots of examples on lists and maybe a couple of on email addresses and it kind of i've run up against this it kind of feels like it's only really going to work for obviously mathematical stuff or obviously abstract stuff yeah this is why i wanted to get you in because you've done this with a lot more hairy code so take me through to how to, how can I write better and more general property tests? Yeah, so you're describing me circa 2016, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I was at a conference talk and someone gave a great talk and all uh, all that, but I was like in denial and I was like, nah, that's not going to work for my stuff. <laughs> it's too much, too academic, too uh, theoretical. And um, okay, so... Yeah, I started there, and then I, I think I softened to the idea by, um, we had this rewrite kind of project where we had where we shared the database between two implementations, and okay. uh, for a, a while during the the sort of rewrite or rewrite or um, it was sort of slicing a part of the system and rewriting, and uh, and we can compare the, those systems uh, how they acted on the same input with where the input was actually the database and so I, I i wasn't actually looking to learn property-based testing but i was doing this and i sort of backtracked from there and it's like this is sort of a variation on property testing in a sense um so the property was sort of these two systems should be uh, in sync or they oh, should I see. yeah the should give this give the same output for for the same input, basically. Yeah. And that is a common way of expressing a property test. If you have some system that is uh, very complicated in a, not not in its functionality, not in its, in its uh, essence, but in a sort of non-functional way, maybe has a lot of performance optimizations and stuff, then you can write another version, which is really simple, uh, just in memory, super naive, whatever. And then you can run them side by side and see that they produce the same output. Anyway, yeah, um, <laughs> I'm derailing. Um, <laughs> so uh, that was sort of my my uh, where I started, I think. And then um, for in a totally different project, I was doing a screencast uh, editor application. And uh, oh yeah, yeah, that you wrote, right? Yeah. And so I, I was doing my own screencasts around Haskell programming, and um, I thought it might be a good idea to also do a, an editor for doing screencast editing. <laughs> so recording first, and then pulling all the stuff in there, and um, having my own workflow and so on. That was a fun project. <laughs> that sounds like a lot of fun, but really going the hard way. <laughs> yeah, sort of a <laughs> sidetrack. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, that was also an experiment sort of driven uh, from this angle of, of learning property-based testing because I, I quickly realized that it, it was getting complicated because I had this, partly I had um, undo, redo, and a lot of operations that could be undone and redone. And they were all uh, implemented sort of as a in, a in a functional way. So you had a big state and you had some operation that sort of produced a new state. Uh the architecture was not was nice, but it was hard to verify that it, everything worked as it should because it was. I shouldn't go into too much detail, but I had this kind of tree structure of all the clips and all the audio and video and pauses in between and so on. Everything right. was small segments of, of different types, and then I had sort of um, first I had uh, Vim bindings to navigate this thing, and also um, something. What's it called from Emacs? Uh, I have this uh, Lisp editing thing. I've forgotten the name. Oh, um, Paradit. Yeah, yeah. Structural editing. Yes. Yeah. So you can sort of shift entire expressions sideways or upwards, or split them and 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 ungroup them and so on. Oh, so you're swapping chunks of uh, video like their S expressions. Yeah. <laughs> nice. It's very geeky. <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh, strange uh, and uh, all these operations could be undone and redone and it was really hard to test all these operations because loads of edge cases so on, are you um, saying you've got you've got this big tree structure 
I'm just, this seems like a classic thing that I would find very hard to property test because I don't, I don't want to rewrite video files a thousand times an auto-generated test. And I don't really want to generate a lot. I don't want to really handwrite large, meaty um, starting states. Hmm. Exactly. So how did you t- teach me how to solve that those problems? <laughs> I, I'll try to remember because I wrote this. Uh, this became a, a series of blog posts, and then later I rewrote it sort of as a, a, a short book, oh. um, uh, which is called... Um, I think property-based testing in a screencast editor. Very down to earth. Um, and um, okay, so what? Uh, if I recall correctly, the the properties were some of the interesting ones were sort of using this undo redo as a way of discovering other problems. Okay. So uh, I had all these operations, but I didn't test them explicitly. Like, oh, how should move up in the tree structure work or whatever operation. Um, but I could generate just random operations, uh, a sequence of them. And it was a bit more complicated because um, you can only know what operations are valid once you're in a certain state. So it was more of a back and forth, like generate one operation, apply it, get a new state, and then see what can be the next uh, valid operation and generate one of those. And you step forward like that for a certain length. Okay. So uh, you're almost treating it like a state machine where each new state you ask which are the transition states. Yeah. What, yeah. Are, what are the, the valid transitions from here? And then you can gen- generate from that list of, of possible transitions. And do that for a while and you end up with a, a trace, basically, uh, of state, operation state, operation state, and so on. Yeah. So I did that, and then I undid, or like unply, if applied the same number of undo operations for all of them. Right. And then end up where I started. Okay. So, but uh, to, to answer your other question, like how did I, you don't want to write these big sort of timeline um, starting states to test against because it's a sort of maintenance problem. And, and, boring so with property-based testing you you normally have like you write small generators there are a bunch of built-in generators for the regular types the the built-in types and so on but then you can um, you can build your own generators that sort of piece together other generators so i could define a generator for this whole timeline and that in turn used um generators for like audio and video clips and so on and they weren't actually real audio and video clips i had some kind of generic type parameter somewhere i don't remember exactly but okay. uh, so they, they weren't actually generating uh, files on disk it was okay just in memory structure so what is it generating a gigabyte's worth of binary randomness or what no uh, that part it didn't actually hold any video data it was just a structure so okay so up for... i create an empty clip with some metadata yeah Right. Because the operation didn't touch the actual video, so I can ignore that part and, and just parameterize that with units or something. Okay. Yeah. And um, okay. And then uh, this undo redo, I had some other properties on, on that in that sort of style. So like do a bunch of things, undo all them, all of them, and then redo all of them. Then you should end up at the furthest end before you started undoing that makes sense and then yeah yeah, you might think like okay you're only testing undo and redo that was gonna be my next question yeah (laughs) (laughs) but which is useful but because of how i implemented undo and redo so each operation had its inverse as a separate implementation right so if you could uh let's say if you had a clip which was um or, or, or it was called sequence and it had a bunch of like audio parts in in a sequence if you could split that at a certain point you could also join it back together and that was sort of the inverse of splitting was joining okay um and by doing this whole undo redo thing in in random ways all these um uh, inverse operations were 
also executed and they had to agree in order to produce the same so i had um uh, loads of small um like off by one errors and stuff like that oh yep yeah i can believe that and those were uncovered by doing these sequences um i could probably find most of it by just doing uh the the inverse round trip kind of property um but uh it like doing it together with Andrew Redu sort of did the whole thing in, in this catastrophic mess that uncovered a lot of bugs. So um, it was a nice experience. It took like two weeks to just fix all the bugs. It didn't take so long to write the properties, but uh. I was just scratching my head for like two weeks trying to figure out the, the bugs and uh, getting getting all that um, that's the interesting thing when it turns up bugs you c- didn't expect to see yeah right and I, I, I had experienced the bugs while using the screencast tool i knew yeah. that there was some something going on but I couldn't really pin it down it's like what 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 happened there uh did it what did i do like it's hard to should i like record my screen on my keyboard to to be able to reproduce and uh, yeah th- that was really cool and um to find them that way uh so I, I just did like bug fixes and and following the tests for basically two weeks and when i came out the other end and i started a screencast editor everything just worked it was just <laughs> perfect that's nice that's nice yeah you would have spent those two weeks the hard way right spread out over the next year yeah just this. bug reports or whatever pain uh, and trying to figure out what was going on yeah. so um that was one part i i did property tests for other things i had um, i could bring that up as well it's a i think an, a nice example i had this the workflow was based on just recording uh screencast video and mm. in between sort of scenes i was just silent because i was so i did part of the screencast and then i was silent and didn't touch the keyboard and uh, was just thinking, like, okay, what's the next part? Maybe yeah. looking at a little script or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then when I imported this into my editor, I wanted everything to be chopped up by those silent parts because I don't want them. Yeah, makes sense. So I had this um, sort of processing part that um, uh, it. It um, analyzed the video and audio and found out like here's a pause, and let's just clip uh, or like trim it down to the end of the audio and trim the other part to the start of the next audio and so on. Like so, if it's completely silent for five seconds, assume it's a pause and find the ends of that silence. Yeah, 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 makes sense. So um, that was sort of a, the, the scene classifier. I wanted to test this with a property test as well. And uh, I couldn't really figure out because th- your example there with the square roots and uh, th- that is a good good analogy because I had the same problem. Like if I generate an input, what should be a, what should be the output for this classifier? Well, that's the problem, right? <laughs> that's yeah. that's what the classifier does. <laughs> and I couldn't really figure out like how how should I express this without ju- just writing another classifier again in the test? Yeah. I mean, I would instinctively say, well, at least I can write a test that says the output should be no longer than the input. Yeah, that's and that's a good start. Like there are loads of these incomplete or sort of naive properties that do find actual bugs as well. They might not be that like cover uh, all of it and, and be very precise, but these sort of constraints are really powerful. And I do recommend just doing that for a good while if you can't come up with something else that's just better than nothing because it's you might uh, find unexpected things with just those basic sort of invariants or constraints okay okay i feel better about my test that seems kind of obvious (laughs) yeah but is this what did you do is is there something more sophisticated i can do than that test yeah um so what i did it was after um i think a lot of being out on my bike and just thinking, <laughs> I, I realized that maybe I can generate the output instead and go backwards. 
So that was sort of the, the mind twist that happened. Because I can generate the output, which should be a list of scenes, basically, classified and done. I right. could go backwards and say, um, if I had these scenes, I can um, transform them into something that moves in video or audio that is sort of noisy or something. And then uh, in between, I can put just uh, same frame all over again. Oh, okay. Or audio that's just blank or something like that. Uh, and then piece together that into an actual, you know, actual video or actual audio. And then run the classifier on that input, which I've... So I, I, I generate uh, scenes, which are just like basically from to timestamp that says, here's some video going on. And then another scene saying like, okay, 10 seconds later, there's some video going on, which is also a scene and so on. And there's silence between, which is five seconds or something. Uh, I can take that, map that into actual input. It's the same thing as you said with uh, Square. It's, it's easier to go in the other direction. Yeah. Uh, and then I ran the classifier on that, got some stuff out, and I can just see that the scenes uh, align. Okay. I've not heard of that technique before. So normal property testing, you get randomly generated inputs. You're saying get randomly generated outputs, reconstruct the inputs the easy way. Yeah. And then check your software reconstructs the outputs the hard way. Yeah. That's, oh, that's a Jedi mind trick. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a nice one. Yeah. Um, so on this topic, I should, maybe you can put a link somewhere or something. There's this, F-Sharp for fun and profit website, um, which has a lot of F-Sharp content, of course. But uh, there's also this series on property-based testing. And there is one part which is, um, I forget the exact name, but it's something like property, uh, patterns for property tests or something like that. Okay. It has a bunch of these sort of, uh, common templates on how to think about stuff. You have the round-trip property, which is very nice if you have two functions that are sort of inverse as i said before like if you have a, a render function and a parse function for instance yeah you can take whatever you start with uh apply the render function get a string then apply the, uh, the parse function to the string and get back your uh, original input to so go one one like loop. if you were writing a refactoring tool that wanted an idempotent well uh, that, no that change kind of, yeah. refactor yeah well that that is a, uh, actually a different kind of input uh, or a different kind of pattern which is sort of an item potency property which is if you apply the same operation twice you should or apply the operation once you get a result then apply the operation once again you have the same result and you just keep keeping there but the round trip properties sort of you have to have two functions that are uh, mirrored oh yeah i see what you're saying so i was thinking a refactoring tool that parses the source code does nothing and then prints it back out okay yeah, that but would you're be saying you could also yeah. have the test where it's like apply this refactoring five times in a row and it shouldn't take place more than once yeah sort of a yeah. fixed point refactor yeah, yeah. fixed points I can tell you're a haskell programmer you got fixed points <laughs> into the conversation reveal <laughs> <laughs> that's the tell uh yeah and um there are a bunch of others um i don't know if i can just come up with them right now but um I think this sort of, it's called something like um, hard to prove but easy to verify, which is your example with the square roots. Right. And um, then there is the really kind of big brain things. And there's one technique called metamorphic testing, which I haven't actually used it much. At least I, I've experimented with, but not really found uh, where I needed it yet. Just for kicks, can you explain it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, then. <laughs> All right. So metamorphic testing is sort of if you have an input and you apply your system of uh, under test and you get an output. Um, if you could slightly modify that input in some way. So kind of, let's say, make it larger in a sense, smaller or different in some way that you can know. Uh, then you can apply the, the function or the system on that input. And you get an output. And if you compare those two outputs, then you know that the output should be, let's say, smaller or bigger or something. It should have the same relation. Uh, if you can okay. express a relation 
or transformation between one input and another, then you should you can say that the output should also have a sort of matching uh, relation. So the, the canonical example there would be if you have a search engine, it's really tricky to test that with properties. Like what should it give back, right? Yeah, yeah. Tricky. Uh, but if you can, if you do search, you get some results and you do a, research, uh, a new search with, I don't know, a date filter on it, which wasn't there before. Slightly more constrained search. Then yeah. you should get a result, which is a subset if you can observe the, the entire result, of course, but the the output then should be a subset of the other output, which was a bigger search. Yeah, and then you don't really care what the input is and you don't really care what the system's doing as long as the relationship between the changing input. I feel like I'm differentiating a graph in high school maths now. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's the rate of change in curve A the same as the rate of change in curve B. Yeah, exactly. You don't <laughs> yeah. care. In this case, you don't care about either input or output, basically. You yeah. just know that, well, you, you have some way of modifying input and, and seeing that the output sort of behaves as you would expect. Uh, but otherwise, you don't, you don't know much. <laughs> about either of them <laughs> the sense i'm getting here is if you want to use property testing well you need to be sneaky <laughs> yeah you have to think differently at least yeah. it's, a, it's a a shift of mindset in many ways um, but that's good again as we said it's like thinking you write this is one of the reasons why testers work as a separate department you write some code and there's someone thinking about it in a completely different way to you hmm. putting it under test it would be so much faster and more efficient and sometimes less embarrassing if we could be that completely different person thinking in a completely different way and testing our code. Yeah. Right? yeah. And I think this helps um, to get us more into that situation where we can test it not as we would think when we implement it. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think... So I'm thinking about your um, screencast editor you have set this up so that it seems to be largely pure functions. You're not doing writing stuff to disk, right? Mm. Is is that a necessary part of this technique? Do you have to try and find a way to extract the the side effects of writing to a database, writing to disk, before you can do this well? Right. It's a very, very good question because I'm I'm sort of still in pure function land, right? <laughs> yeah. And and that is nice if you can keep your architecture and your system under test uh, in that space, and and you, your test can be faster, and uh, it's just nicer to work with. But it doesn't always work, right? So, um, as you said, the, the screencast thing was I didn't actually run the full UI; I just ran a model of the UI, or sort of the the representation of the UI, and um, didn't actually have real video. In memory or on disk or anywhere for, for right, some yeah. properties so yeah it, it was sort of still pure purely functional um but you can uh, absolutely do property tests with side effects um but it it there is there are some some things you have to think about you have to keep it isolated for instance uh, so each test has to be isolated from the next and um I do this at work a lot. Actually, we we use there's this thing uh, called test containers, oh, yeah. which is uh, is available for a lot of different languages. But you can say like for this test, I want a Postgres uh, Docker container running, and it you can make it so that you always have a fresh database basically for each test. Isn't the tricky thing there though? Like property testing, you're often generating ten thousand test cases. Yeah, and you can spin out ten thousand Postgres. No, exactly. So, but you you can work around some of these things with like having transactions that you always roll back each test. Yeah, yeah, it makes it a bit faster than <laughs> running new Docker containers all the time. Uh, but still, you won't be able to run, I don't know, a thousand tests below a second. W won't be possible. Maybe there are other tweaks you can do, but maybe we run like a hundred tests, but over time, because this isn't uh, deterministic, over time you test more and more different cases, which is both good and bad. So you <laughs> I can might... see why it's good. Why is it bad? 
I'm, it's perhaps not bad, but it could be frustrating when a test fails after two months. Uh, yeah. Now we discovered that edge case that we didn't think about. Yeah, because you've been chipping away at probably 100 test cases at a time. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that particular time in CI when someone did something completely unrelated, uh, my property test uh, you know, failed. This like, is why I think it's, it's kind of essential right, in property tests that you get this seed that gives you your receipt so you can replay, you can make it deterministic. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you get a magic number that says play exactly the same set of random tests. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that is useful when it happens in AI. You can at least reproduce it locally. Yeah. But the person, I don't know, doing the PR might not be too pleased, but someone, some other tests that you know they haven't touched the <laughs> okay. <problem> system. <laughs> Where that yeah, this is start failing now. You've got unlucky to catch the bug that Dave wrote two months ago. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that could happen. Uh, so that that is perhaps the downside, but um, uh, it does absolutely work with side effects as well. But you have to be a bit more, uh, I don't know, careful or think about how you should set these tests up. And yeah. um, what more? Yeah, and then there's the whole UI bit. Because yes. yeah, I didn't run the full UI in the screencast editor. It was a GTK UI. But that was also nagging me. Like, oh, does the GTK stuff work? I don't know. <laughs> the, 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 the heavy lifting stuff underneath tends to work because I have all these tests. But do all the buttons uh, connect properly to everything and, and so on? Yeah, because you know that real unit testing department, the first thing they're going to do is mash the click button all over your UI and try and crash it, right? Yeah, yeah. and I have like zero test coverage of that code, so <laughs> that's great. And um, yeah, that, that was nagging me a bit as well. Like I want to test the whole thing, like end-to-end, black boxy kind of testing. Uh, which led me, after a few detours, into what later became uh, this project called Quickstrom. <laughs> which is an excellent name, Oscar Wickstrom. <laughs> Quickstrom, love it, yes. <laughs> I, I was forced to take this name for, for the project, and I, uh, <laughs> but I do take responsibility, of course. Well, uh, it's an open goal. You might as well kick it in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, okay, so this, uh, this project uh, is about doing this sort of end-to-end property style testing, but on stateful systems or UIs more specifically, uh, which is what we did. Okay. So um, I had Can I just stop you and ask why not Selenium? Because that's most people's answer to this, Selenium or something like it. Yeah, so mostly for the same reasons as any example-based testing is limiting. Like you have to come up with the examples. You have to think of and especially with like Selenium or whatever uh, scenario kind of testing that you automate, um, there are a bunch of problems. But one is that you, like when you have this sort of stateful system where you do sequences of actions, the combinatorics of that just blows up very quickly. And it's it's very tricky to come up with enough sequences that are interesting to, to catch like a lot of bad behavior and, yeah. and bugs and um so that, that is one part and um it's also kind of annoying to maintain because definitely experience that <laughs> yeah you have timing issues which have gotten better now with other frameworks i think with like cypress and there, there are a bunch of them and they have more like utilities to wait for stuff and not have like fixed sleeps all over the place um you do have the, the problems with being sort of very, uh, very uh, tightly tied to the structure of the web app, for instance, Incidentum. Uh, which, to be fair, y- you still have some of that in Quickstrom, but not as much. You don't have that uh, so much of the timing problems. You don't have so much of the coupling to the to the structure of the web page and so on. So what you do in Quickstream instead, and which is like, I, I didn't want to write <laughs> so many Selenium tests, um, is that you you sort of write a property, but but it's a bit different because um, I had this idea like I want to use uh, a, um, a type of logic, which is called linear temporal logic. Right. <laughs> so I feel the rabbit hole has just opened before us. 
Yeah. <laughs> so if if you've heard about TLA plus, this is sort of the foundation, uh, common foundation. So you have um, the sort of the logic that you know, <laughs> the the propositional logic with and or implies all that. Yeah. Uh, but then you extend that with some operators that deal with time. So you can say something like you know, x and next y, which means that x must be true in this state, and in the next state, y must be true. Can you give me a concrete example for a web page? Yeah. Um, so maybe if I click a button, let's say. So I say that, okay, the button is visible, and in that's like x, right? The button is visible, and in the next state, if I have clicked, I could do like, if the action is click, then that implies that in the next state, I don't know, message should be shown, something like that. But uh, maybe uh, another more interesting one would be, um, there is an operator called always, which mm. says that the sub expression should always be true in all states. So I could say something like there is always either a login or a logout button on every page. Yeah. Yeah. Should always so. show, I don't know, a link to a support email or <laughs> I don't know, yeah. something. Could be sort of, you can start thinking about it sort of as kind of business <laughs> yeah, rules or, you know, requirements for your page. Yeah. Uh, or it could be, uh, there's a, an operator called eventually. So you can say in the future, sometime this must happen eventually so okay, give me a concrete example okay so if you click a button which launches i don't know a http request you might see a little spinner going on and then you want to eventually get some result back some data shown or maybe an error message okay but i've written some code this morning actually that eventually should show a chart yeah so yeah okay every async thing yeah in a ui so that would be one example and by using this logic with these temporal operators, you can express these requirements. And you can, if you do this in a certain style, you can express sort of your web app as a state machine, which fits some web apps. And uh, you can okay, say yeah. like, um, basically your, your, um, your specification says that this web app always goes from one state to the next in a valid way. That's the state machine kind of definition. And then you say, okay, what does it mean to go from one state to the next in a valid way? Well, you sort of, you, um, you just list all your valid transitions and you combine them with or. And this is a very sort of TLA plus way of describing a state machine. So if okay, I have so a, are you saying yeah. if I, I mean, I would expect a web page to, there's always a sign in button mm. and then I do some stuff and hit submit and then I get to my account page and that should, and then will the software then go and try and find ways to get to the account page without me doing that? Uh, it, it wouldn't be uh, so direct that it would be, so when you have the spec, you can just run Quickstream basically and it, it basically d just does random things. But um, random possible things. So uh, in a web page, that that's the sort of the neat trick because you can inspect the web page and see what buttons are available right now, which are disabled or enabled, which links are there. What can I do basically? So yeah, that sort of reflecting capacity is already in the browser by by talking to the browser, and then Quickstream oh. goes around and does random things. You can constrain that as well, but uh, you can be very open. And then it checks while it runs, does the behavior of the web app agree with your specification? So this is like your video editor where you say, okay, I'm now in this state. What are the possible transitions out of this state? Yeah, exactly. Which in the case of web page are buttons. And then you're just clicking random buttons going along random timelines and trying to find and checking that it doesn't break any of the rules as you go. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So the, the nice thing is that you don't have to list all the valid transitions because the web page already sort of embodies the, the valid transitions. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah, it's advertising its own state machine from a certain point of view. Yeah. yeah. It, um, it's the, um, what, what do you call it? It's like hypermedia 
aspect of web apps. It, it sort of encodes its own state machine in the output of the HTML. Yeah. I mean, I've thought of web pages as being like state machines, but I've never thought of them advertising their transition states to you. Of course yeah. they do. Yeah, yeah, that's neat. Or, or you could build them not doing that, but that would be kind of bad. Like if you have a lot of loads of buttons you can click, and then it's like, <laughs> no, that was the wrong button. That's not a valid transition. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. We just give you all the buttons in the entire system, and then complain <laughs> when you hit the wrong ones. Yeah, <laughs> I bet you there's one website out there that does it just through bad design probably some time reporting thing yeah. <laughs> yeah but but that's sort of the principle of of quickstream so you write the spec and you say what what is correct behavior and you can be very detailed or you can be very loose and and abstract you can just say like i only care about this login logout button that's all do other things just go around the website do whatever you want i just care about this login button being correct for instance or you could be very like complete and say, these are exactly the transitions that are valid and this should be the result after each transition and so on. Yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking, I think I've got this right. There's isn't there a law in Germany that says you must have an impressum, like contact details page on every web on every page? Well, uh, I'm not a lawyer, so <laughs> no, no. But we can imagine a rule like that where the government says this must appear on every page and you would just write the rule for that. And that's, yeah. that's it. And then it just goes around doing random stuff and checking that your little contact thing is there. And just to be clear, is it checking? I can set up multiple properties and it will test them all as part of the same journey? Yeah. yeah. So if I've got a thousand properties I want to check, it doesn't do, it doesn't multiply the execution time by a thousand. No, you compose different logical expressions into one spec. Okay. So, yeah. So this is always a tricky question to ask in a podcast, but we have to try. What's that actually look like when you write it? What's the what's the coding language ask you to say? Yeah, so there, there are two parts to these quickstream specs. Um, one is this, um, it's called the proposition, which is sort of the what is correct, the expression that describes the correctness, um, which uh, has all these... Um, the, the the temporal operators and all that. You also have in the, those expressions you can uh, you can write selectors which are like CSS selectors. You can mm -hmm. get access to an element in the DOM, and then you can um, pull out like attributes, properties, styles, stuff like that from those elements, so that you can say like, okay, this element on the page, this should have. A text content that is uh, foobar, and it uh, the color is red or <laughs> something like that, or it has an attribute which is X. Uh, so you can express all these uh, kind of assertions or uh, logical truth statements about uh, elements in the DOM, and you well you just compose all that up into this proposition. The other part is that you can declare actions which are so. Um, out of the box, Quickstream has a knowledge on a page what are sort of valid actions. But um, kind of. <laughs> but uh, you can also say like, okay, don't click all the buttons. Uh, click buttons. Uh, click buttons in this part of the page only when this condition is true in the current state. So you can constrain it. And say you can also chain stuff and say like if I did this before, then do this afterwards. You can sort of direct it in certain ways. Okay. But most of that is if you have a web page that very clearly encodes what is desirable sort of behavior, next step, uh, you don't have to say much. You can just say click anything, do anything. Uh, but if you want to be more detailed, you can be be that. And it ends up looking very much like code or yeah, I mean, I, I've maintained Selenium tests, and it always felt a bit like I was poking around inside the back end of a UI that was supposed to record things. Yeah, but does this look like more of a programming experience, declaring properties? Kind of. Yeah, uh, it's so Quickstream started out with the first version it was actually a pure script DSL. Okay. Uh, so, and it was. A lot weirder than you might think because I actually built my own pure script interpreter 
Uh, <laughs> so I just use PureScript to parse PureScript as a sort of front-end language and uh, and uh, wrote this uh, imp- imp- PureScript interpreter in Haskell for it. You don't like to do things the easy way. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it was a kind of a good fit, uh, but a bit tricky as well. But the nice thing there was, at least in principle, you could use PureScript libraries. So I, I ported so PureScript has these um, kind of stubs or native parts that uh, you have to write in the, the runtime language. So JS in the normal usage of, of PureScript. So those I had to implement for certain libraries. But you could use like weird monad stuff or whatever you wanted to do, uh, common PureScript libraries in your specs. So that was nice because I got a lot of things for free, like string manipulation and stuff like that. Just kind of worked out of the box. But then we rewrote Quickstrom in a in a different version, which in which we there were some limitations to the PureScript EDSL thing. Right. Uh, so uh, we decided to write a, a custom language for it. So, okay, so yeah. so there is Quickstrom the language as well as Quickstrom the tool. Yeah. Yeah. And that is it ha- has some shortcuts and it does some trade-offs to be able to analyze, um, sort of analyze the language or the, the spec uh, for certain things. So we know statically, like all the attributes uh, you ask on ask for, or all the properties, all the styles, all that stuff that you ask for on certain selectors. We all we can analyze that statically and and optimize the queries basically. Okay. Yeah. So we needed that for a certain reason and uh, couldn't really figure out how, how to do this with pure script. So, and just syntactically, it's a bit nicer, but it's sort of like a functional language in a sense. It's just one big Boolean expression, but uh, yeah. Okay. So you write these small specs. And uh, so we, we have one where I work and it's like 90 lines, I think. And we have barely touched it in, in a few years. So uh, it's, it's pretty nice, but uh, of course, like it's not the documentation is lacking, and there's uh, no editor support. I have some basic editor support, so it works in Emacs and IntelliJ. But uh, yeah, okay. Depending on who you are, that either covers all the ones you want or none of them, because <laughs> yeah. that's editor wars for you. Right. So, what's the license for this? It is BSD three. Okay, so it is an open source tool I can just download and use. Yeah. When I started it, I had some ideas of doing sort of a business side of it and have like a dual license thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it took another direction. So uh, that is the, the current state. Oh, sounds like our gain. <laughs> yeah. Do you but, ever try, have you ever tried running on other people's sites, found bugs with it? Because presumably it's doing a lot of testing. You ever attempted to do that? Yeah. So when we did this second version of Quickstrom, uh, when I say we, it's me and uh, Liam O'Connor, which uh, he's an academic, and uh, we uh, we found each other on Twitter uh, talking about what was it, F star, and uh, proving certain theorems around uh, temporal logic and stuff like that, and and uh, we realized like okay, this Quickstrom thing is a nice academic project if we want, so we started working on that together, and this new language that we did and uh, sort of the, the infrastructure of it uh, and the model of it all that turned into a paper ah what's the paper called i'll put a link in the show notes uh it's called like quickstrom testing uh oh, what is it called testing with linear temporal logic something like that I... that sounds like a properly academic title <laughs> yeah Got the colon in there somewhere, yeah. <laughs> and then you go to the web page. It says Quickstrum for not tearing a hair out over selenium. <laughs> exactly, as you advertise to two completely different sectors. Marketing language does not yeah. have a place in in academia. Um, so I got to be a sort of a got into the academic realm, the the, the back door, in a sense. Um, <laughs> I haven't done There's much. Better funding that way, from what I hear. <laughs> maybe <laughs> but that was really fun and we did uh, a case study or a sort of evaluation uh, in that paper where we there's this 
old project called To Do MVC. Where, oh yeah, yeah, where they it's been around for many years. Hundreds uh, of different implementations of it as yeah. people prove their ideas. Yeah, yeah. So, well, just short. It's uh, to do lists in in like a hundred different front end frameworks and languages. Uh, so I thought like that should be a, a pretty cool testing ground for our yeah tool. so we wrote one spec for all of them and, and just tested all of them and that spec was really really detailed it was like if you have if you're in this state this is a valid transition it says like if you change the filter from viewing all to do items to completed items only the completed ones should be visible in the next state and so on a yeah. lot of different uh, and I didn't even know to do MVC has this edit mode. You can double click items and you turns into an input and you can edit them and so on. Um, and we just tested, uh, uh, ran loads of tests on these, um, these apps. And we found that like more than half of them were broken in some way. Oh, so that was that's fun. nice. Yeah. And I mean, it's not nice. It's it's initially terrible news, but in the long term, it's nice. Yeah, and I mean, some of them were broken, and like it doesn't even load anymore because someone had brought a server down or something. Uh. But most of them could actually be run, uh, and they had all kinds of strange. We have we had this table of I don't know, twelve, thirteen, fourteen different types of problems they had, uh. and some of them were really like uh, kind of complex. Like if you did this, had this filter on, started editing, pressed escape, then changed the filter, then it broke. Something like that. I, I don't recall all the details, but um, to be able to generate something like that without having to specify, as an example, that set of steps, that's yeah. nice. Yeah. yeah. And do you do you get this property that most um, property testing things have? I shouldn't double use the meaning of the word property. Do you get this receipt? Do you get this token that says, and if you want to reproduce these steps that crashed this app, rerun the test suite with this magic number? We don't with Quickstrom. Um, we don't have that seed. Can we have that in version three? <laughs> I mean, we, we could add that, but there's actually no guarantee that you can reproduce it. Um, and you could end up in that situation with any property-based testing framework, really, if you have non-determinism. But there might be sort of timing aspects for stuff so that yeah. even if we apply the same actions in the same sequence... Um, I see. Yeah. Do not... I at least get like a report of what sequence of steps led to that point? Yeah. You yeah. get... Okay. There's this. There's a textual one in the console, but there's a more usable one, which is an HTML page. It spits out where you see state action state you can sort of next 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 and you can <laughs> go through the trace and see what happened you see the state of all the elements that you have uh, queried and so on so you can inspect what went wrong okay and it always it always ends the test once it's found a problem so it doesn't always run like a hundred steps when the spec fails whenever that happens um it ends there, so you know, sort of, in the end of the trace, there is something going on, probably. Okay. And how does it know when to um, when to stop if it doesn't find a problem? Do you just say run for five minutes, or? Yeah, you can you can specify these sort of we call them subscripts, but you can say like if you have an always operator somewhere, you can say like always at least for a hundred steps. Okay. So you can. Sort of specify some time constraints, or like if you have an eventually, you can say like, okay, wait for at least ten steps before you give up. Right. Okay. And then there's, think... an, there's an interesting aspect of um, with eventually, if if you have a condition that you expect to to uh, eventually hold, <clears throat> and it doesn't, it might not mean that it would never hold. It just means that you gave up too soon, perhaps. Mm. So the result of the tests are uh, definitely true or false, or maybe true or false. So it's a bit tricky. So if you say that eventually the spinner should turn into a result, and it doesn't, and the test give, gives up, uh, then it says, well, maybe that, that was false. Yeah. So, yeah, like eventually Spotify should show that this podcast has 
a million subscribers, but I might have to wait for the test to run a bit, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. Also. Yeah. I think that probably gives me all the information I need then to at least go and test my code that should eventually show a chart. <laughs> yeah. That'd be a good little property to start with, right? We could do that with Quickstream, I think. Yeah, okay. I'm think. going to give it a spin. Yeah. Groovy. Cool. Oscar, little... thank you very much for taking us through it. Yeah. Thank you for having me here. That was uh, very fun to reminisce about uh, some stuff that I've forgotten, but uh, <laughs> some details, but it's uh, very nice to bring up. Yeah, we are all both the programmers we are today and the history of the things we've programmed in the years gone by, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Cheers. Catch you again. Thanks. Bye. Thank you, Oscar. And I have to say, Oscar's my kind of geek. He's got a bit of academia. He's got a bit of business, and the thing connecting the two is just someone that wants to build and tinker with stuff and learn. The world needs more people like him, so yeah. In fact, I think the world needs more people like us. We're all that kind of person, aren't we? I think we are around here. By the time we've reached the end of the podcast, I think we're all like that. So if you want to feed those parts of your soul, head to the show notes where you'll find links to papers, tools, sites, software all the ideas we just discussed. That will give you something to chew on for the coming week. While you're down by the show notes, please take a note of the like, share, rate, subscribe buttons. I was looking recently, of course I look at the analytics, I was surprised to see how many people share this podcast. So thank you to those who have done, that's a heck of an endorsement. When you send something to a friend and say, hey look at this, thank you, I appreciate that. We'll be back next week with another episode, of course. I'm actually playing catch-up a bit because I just spent the week in Montreal at a really excellent tech conference, Confu. Would recommend. There'll be another one in 2025, so take a look. Full of ideas from that, lots of potential guests, but lots to catch up on, so I'd better get on with it. Until next week, I've been your host, Chris Jenkins. This has been Developer Voices with Oscar Wickstrom. Thanks for listening. Thank you.